0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free
1: on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG.
0: So the Prime Minister of Canada made his way to Europe, where the... Um, Comprehensive economic and trade agreement between the European Union and Canada were signed today, C-E-T-A, CETA, or CETA, however it's pronounced. Uh, Jeff Semple is the European Bureau Chief for Global News, joins us from Brussels. Jeff, uh, thank you for the time. And what uh, what does the agreement mean to Canada in the short and longer term? More specifically, does it help our economy?
1: Well, you know what, Roy, that is the obvious question, but it's also one that, you know, you really have a hard time getting a a clear answer to. I mean, I think the government will tell you, the Justin Trudeau's Liberal government will tell you that it will generate around $12 billion for the Canadian economy every year. And that that breaks down to around $1,000 extra per Canadian household per year. So it sounds pretty good. But that would be, of course, if it was all divvied up evenly, uh, which certainly many critics don't expect it will be. You know, there's still a lot of opposition to this deal with people pointing out that, you know, concerns that it predominantly favors large corporations. But today, Justin Trudeau was, you know, adamantly making the case in a way that we haven't really heard from him before, that this deal is first and foremost for ordinary Canadians, for the middle class that, you know, they can look forward to lower prices in the supermarket for things like cheese, for example, and that Canadian exporters can look forward to getting rid of around 98% of tariffs between the European Union, uh, of course, the world's largest trading bloc. So in the short term, what we're waiting for now, a couple more hurdles that still need to, to be passed, legal ones that most people expect uh, will will pass, though, you know, as we've seen from Wallonia over the past week, this has been a difficult one to predict. But assume Assuming all goes to plan, in the next few months, we will see the tariffs coming down, and you should be seeing the impact almost instantly, whether you're a consumer or an exporter.
0: And so part of the challenges would would include the strategic partnership agreement, the side deal, and also the ratification?
1: Yes, well, that's right. And so the ratification obviously needs to come first and foremost from the European Parliament. So this is one more chance for a massive body, nearly nearly 400 members of European or excuse me, nearly 800 members of the European Parliament who get to have a vote. Many of them are opposed, but it's believed that they have the majority needed to pass. The other big hurdle uh, gets a little bit more technical, but the European Court of Justice will now examine ISDS. It's the acronym used to describe this new CETA court that's proved quite controversial. And this, this court would have the ability to decide when a corporation, for example, could sue a government if they felt that government was interfering with their investments. Now, Wallonia, you'll remember that you know, previously unknown, now world-famous rebel region of Belgium right. was particularly upset about that. They So part of the agreement to get them on side was to say, look, we'll ask the European Court of Justice, the highest court in Europe, to look at this new CETA court mechanism to make sure that it meets European standards. Most people, I think, expect that it does. And I think most of the international trade experts and European experts we've been speaking, with here over the last week also expect the European Parliament to pass all of this. So a few more hurdles to go, but, you know, really more speed bumps than, you know, the type of hurdle that we saw in Wallonia last week.
0: In the UK, one of the issues was that, that led to Brexit was the huge bureaucracy that exists within the EU. And you mentioned this this court. Um, it's will the decision making will, will will the eventual decisions and any disputes come out of brussels or is it going to be a combination ottawa and brussels
1: yeah, the, the theory behind um, behind this new seat of court is that it would be a combination of Ottawa and Europe, that there would be, I think, 15 judges appointed from both sides. The idea is that it would, you know, trying to make it as, as transparent as and, and public as possible to try and appease some of these concerns, and that they would have the final words. So, you know, theoretically, a large multinational corporation so, say wants to sue Wallonia for you know being too protective or for you know introducing tougher labor laws that are somehow interfering with its investment. Well, if this new CETA court rules that indeed Wallonia broke the rules, then doesn't matter what any other government thinks; they would have the right to sue the Wallonian municipality, and you know the same would go for suing a federal government. And it's it's possible that through this court. A corporation could sue Canada successfully, as we've seen in other situations like NAFTA, for example. Yeah.
0: Jeff, what is it that uh, was most fascinating to you and most uh, intriguing and perhaps uh, uh, challenging as far as this whole CETA agreement was concerned leading up to the signing today?
1: Well, yeah, certainly leading up to it, we spent a lot of time in Wallonia and, you know, wanting to, I mean, we we'd heard only really bits and pieces of, about this, this region of Belgium that, that no one had ever heard of that was suddenly going to cost the Canadian (laughs) economy billions of dollars every year because they were refusing to budge but you know they they really echo a lot of what we've heard from you know in, in the brexit debate and and you know to a certain extent from some trump reporters just sort of fed up with the status quo, fed up with these large multinational corporations getting richer. Well, many of them feel they're just, you know, continuing to get poorer. So they've lost trust in the experts. And, you know, that was a refrain we heard many times with Brexit. And that, I think, you know, was was quite startling, just the comparisons, having covered Brexit and then having been to Wallonia. They are fighting the same fight here. And it's one, as I say, that we see going on in the United States election campaign right now. Wallonia finally agreed to come on side and i think you know a lot of people have applauded them for for taking this on the other thing that i think is is getting a lot of talk here roy is that canada is just being heralded as sort of going the opposite direction you know brexit and trump going one direction canada that sort of you know the economist uh, the the influential british magazine last week called canada's efforts heroic in trying to fight for globalization for liberalization for free trade because you know the stats show that that free trade does a lot of good of course but you know the concern has always been and continues to be whether that's a lot of good for the greatest number of people
0: yeah i know you have to leave us but interesting is that the uk is still part of the eu so i guess they're still part of the deal
1: yeah, they are, and, and how long they are remains to be seen. Yeah, and you know what? It's, it's, as an expert pointed out to us, the government keeps talking about this $12 billion figure. Uh, that's you know $12 billion a year from this new deal, but that study was done back in 2008, and obviously when, when the UK does leave, it's going to take a pretty big bite out of that. We know they plan to start that process this spring, and then they have two years to officially Brexit. So, yeah, I think the United Kingdom may may have a brief stay in this uh, CETA agreement, but uh, we'll be waving goodbye to them pretty quickly.
0: After Brexit, CETA, who knows what's yet to come. Jeff, thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you. Cheers. Thanks, Roy. Jeff Semple, European Bureau Chief for Global News. Uh, Dr. Lomborg is an economist and author. Coolit is one of his books. He's the founder of the Copenhagen Consensus Center think tank at Bjorn Lomborg on uh, Twitter. And I want to speak with Dr. Lomborg about two opinion pieces that he wrote. One is The Free Trade Miracle. And the other is how green policies hurt the poor. And that's something that we talked about following COP21. Dr. Lomborg, good to have you back with us.
2: Hey, Roy. It's great to be back.
0: So Canada and the European Union signed the Comprehensive Economic Trade Agreement today, CETA. What's your view of CETA? And then, by extension, how significantly important is free trade?
2: Well, Roy, we really can't underestimate how much good free trade both has done and can do. Uh, We often forget to remember how it's really enriched almost anyone's lives uh, across the world. If you look at the facts, uh, we now know that especially for poor people, uh, free trade has made many of the conveniences that they buy much, much cheaper. So the reality here is, you know, fundamentally the point that you import a lot of the cheap goods from China, that has made most low-paid people much better off over the last 20 to 30 years. And uh, this is simply because most poor people spend a large proportion of their income on buying stuff, whereas rich people typically buy services. They buy, you know, butlers, if you will. uh, And that, of course, does not actually improve efficiency when you open up for free trade. But this is only part of that argument. The other part, of course, is to remember that it helps poor people In poor countries, Uh, fundamentally, China has over the last 30 years or so lifted about 700 million people out of poverty. We've never seen anything like this in the history of mankind. And that is to a very large extent because it's been driven by free trade. So the reality is free trade does have some problems. It does leave some people who produce things that are inefficient that it leaves them worse off. And those are, of course, often the totemic, uh, you know, uh, 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 decayed factories that we see on, on TV. And that is a real issue. But it neglects the fact that many, many more people get better off with free trade. And so we actually estimate more free trade over the next 15 years could actually leave the world in the order of $11 trillion better off per year. That is, for the average person in the developing world, about $1,000 richer per person per year. That's a phenomenal outcome. And so we need to remember this is overall a phenomenal issue.
0: How do you bring uh, traditional opponents of free trade on side? And I'm thinking particularly of the United States, whether it's Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, neither of them is uh, particularly uh, enthusiastic about free trade. Yeah, no, look, and,
2: and and the real problem with free trade is, of course, it's very, very easy to say, we don't want this. And we also saw that, obviously, in, in Bologna and, and the EU, uh, you know, people actually protesting the Canada-EU free trade agreement. And much, much more, as you mentioned, uh, in the, in the uh, U.S. presidential election, where uh, Donald Trump, who is you know, made a lot of money from free trade, is now against free trade. And Hillary Clinton, who's also been very pro-free trade, is now saying she's against free trade. It's simply much easier to placate the very uh, vocal people who are losing out on free trade. There will be losers from free trade, as I mentioned before. Uh, We probably estimate that about 20% of the benefits that you get from extra free trade are actually lost to someone so there's a significant loss to free trade some people will have to be reschooled some people will have to change their jobs some people will not get another job and that's a real tragedy and a, uh, and a damage for them but what we have to remember is that many many more people are going to be better off from free trade and so we need to point out the fact that this is actually better. You know, uh, the middle class American can buy 29% more for each of their dollars because of the free trade that we've gotten over the last 30 years. But even so, the poorest 10% of all Americans can actually buy 62% more. And so we need to point out, yes, there are problems. Yes, we need to be better at reschooling retooling, making sure that we do all we can to also get the losers of free trade on board again. But we need to point out also that many, many more people win.
0: Dr. Lomborg, uh, I'd like to talk to you about uh, climate policies and uh, or, or green policies and how they hurt the poor, which is the title of an article that you wrote for the U.K. publication The Spectator. And you warned about that following COP21 on this program. And you write that uh, while British environmentalists boast electricity use has dropped almost since 2005, they leave out that the cost of electricity has increased by more than 50% in that same time period. And politicians who promote green policies and renewables, coupled with carbon taxes, chatter about hundreds of thousands of new energy jobs being created. Instead, we find virtually no jobs created, at least that's been what what I've come across, and and people suffering and dying from cold home-related illnesses. Something you pointed out to us uh, following COP21 that in the UK, the elderly, the poor, often will ride the buses all day in the wintertime time just to stay warm.
2: Yeah, and and this is really you know sort of the the dark corner of climate policy that has a real cost for poor people. The fundamental point is if you put a carbon tax. On 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 energy and 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 quite frankly, I'm not against that. I actually think it's an efficient way to do it. But we rarely just do that. We also subsidize inefficient uh, 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 forms of energy, typically solar and wind, and we end up with much more expensive uh, 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 energy costs. We see that very clearly in in Denmark and Germany, that runs ahead of the uh, of of the pack in getting green energy. We have some of the highest costs of energy in the world for consumers. That has real costs because for poor people, energy is a much bigger percentage of their expenditure. So they actually, when the energy prices go up, have to cut much more. And as you mentioned, uh, the UK actually reduced their uh, uh, their energy, uh, cons- sorry, their electricity consumption by about 10%, but they increased the prices by 50%. Who was it that Cut their, carb, uh, their, their electricity consumption. It wasn't the rich. The rich used the same amount of energy all the way through because they could afford to. But the poor, the poorest, actually had to reduce their consumption dramatically. And so you have to recognize that it has a real social downside that you end up being very regressive when you put on, for instance, a carbon tax because it hits the poorest the worst. And that we see very clearly in, in the UK, where, as you pointed out, you have lots of people riding around, lots of pensioners riding around in buses, deciding that they can only heat part of their apartments, staying underneath their carpet, or underneath their duvet at Christmas Eve about an hour longer because they don't want to get up in their cold apartment.
0: Yeah. I've, uh, I'm actually quoting from. Uh from what you've written and what you've talked to us about, and I've done some more research on it, and it's troubling. And we didn't always have cheap electricity. It's been cheap in the last few decades, and it is that particular electricity, which you point out as well, is the lifeblood of economic prosperity. So increase the cost, reduce the supply, create phony promises about renewables, and I may be exaggerating here, but we're heading back to candles and horse and buggy times. (laughs) Well, we're definitely
2: heading back to a place where energy is going to be more expensive, and that means that you can use less of it, and that hurts the poor the most. And let's not forget that this is not just true in the developed world where it hits the poorest regions and the people who are struggling to make ends meet, it hurts them a lot more. And it simply means, for instance, in Britain, that you have to decide, do you want to keep your whole apartment heated? Do you want to heat it heated to an extent that it's actually comfortable for you? But it also hurts the poor in the developing world that are just trying to get on the industrial wagon that are actually trying to get all the things that will bring wealth, as you pointed out. If you go to a country in the developing world, you typically see countries being very dark if you fly over them. Lots of patches are just totally dark. And even in the center of the cities, it'll often be a lot darker because electricity comes at a premium. So you really use it sparingly. But that, of course, means you have less access to electricity for Uh, uh, refrigerators. It means that your food spoils more, less for your domestic services like uh, 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 stoves, which means that you have more indoor air pollution, and you don't have the the, uh, uh, the aggregates to actually run industry or agriculture as efficiently as we do. It simply keeps them back, holds them back
0: more in poverty. Uh, Dr. Lomborg, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for the time today. Great to talk to you. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg at Bjorn Lomborg on uh, Twitter, and you can just Google if you uh, if you Google, um, let me find the one that on on electricity. How green policies hurt the poor. Have Google that. How green policies hurt the poor. We'll come back in a minute. Tell you about the next hour.